I'm quite sure that this doctor has never in his entire practice or hers ever seen a person who had the, the symptoms that this person had and he pulled this diagnosis out of his. There's a reason why we bought malpractice insurance and this is the kind of case where a whole lot of people are going to have to be contributing a whole lot of money. Hey, Rick, you got it. Greg Henry, Gregory, how are you doing back there in Michigan? I'm doing great, and you can't believe it, Rick. It's actually become a little bit warm here in Michigan. I mean, the icebergs in the lakes are melting. It's it Really, spring is in the air here in Michigan, Rick. No complaints this month. Uh, and I, I want to tell you that I'm looking very much forward to being at the uh, – meeting in Las Vegas next week. It's going to be with the boot camp, and uh, that has really been a great course. Hey, listen, you know, this is an unsolicited plug, but the people who hear this, it's too late. You, by the time you get this, it's going to have occurred. However, uh, we do have uh, the quote-unquote advanced boot camp coming up in September, which you are a part of. And then again in December, we have the... Um, what we call the original meeting. This is meeting going to have about 500 uh, folks there. And I think this is a, you know, this is not to pat ourselves on the back, but this is basically a reflection of this void that exists in teaching PAs and NPs how to do emergency medicine and their uh, hunger to, to learn. I, I think it's terrific. It's so invigorating to see these people. Most of them are younger people and, um, they're coming into our specialty, and I think that this is long overdue. It's interesting, Greg, that, that some of these other countries that we know that we think are very advanced don't really um, use PAs and NPs particularly. Like, I don't think Australia does, and Canada certainly does, and I know that. No, no. What they've got is they've got more slave labor than we do, Rick. <laughs> and in well, England, know, in England, you, you become a, a registrar in your specialty for about uh, 74 years, and then you can go out and get a real job. So I, they have different economic incentives, but I will say this, our PAs and NPs have been very enthusiastic attendees. They, they wanna interact, they wanna talk, they're interested, particularly in the risk management stuff. So I'm, uh, listen, I'm all for it. The other thing is the September course is, uh, is east of the Mississippi for the first time. Yeah, it is. We, I have to admit that there is a, um, you either love Las Vegas or you hate it. There's, there's, nobody, <laughs> there's nobody in the middle. And so yeah. uh, we are going to, uh, where are we going? Are we going to Baltimore? Is that? No, no, no. We're going no. To wa- near Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. We're going, yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to, uh, right. We're going to, um, right across the river from Washington. What is that? Arlington. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, uh, I wanted to mention one other thing that's kind of tangential to this. You were mentoring about slave labor. Uh, labor, um, labor. Did you see this story about um, the, the uh, emergency physicians in uh, Australia claiming that there was prejudice in their a, a certifying exam and they're having a, making a big fuss over it because apparently... Um, very few, very, very few non-Anglo physicians pass their uh, certification exam in emergency medicine. And um, it is like grossly different. And yet, uh, and 
so they're making a big stink over down. I guess you didn't hear about this, but it's going no, to be. No, no, I've, I've, I've read all about it. Uh, it's one of those things where, uh, and you and I, of course, represent the two whitest men in the world. Uh, we're almost, we're almost uh, museum pieces. Uh, let me just say that I hope they do come to some reasonable resolution of this. Um, there, there's no question that there are cultural differences that may interfere with the test. But the other side of that coin is if you're going to certify people to be specialists in a field, you want them to be just that. You want them to be true specialists who, uh, who have something to, to offer to the greater good of the, of the uh, profession. Um, this isn't a simple question, Rick. Uh, I, I was an examiner for the boards, an oral examiner for 30 years. I took the board, the first board, and was two weeks later, three weeks later, made an examiner. So I did my 30 years. Um, I think those questions always come up. It's not just unique to Australia, but I certainly think that uh, at least in the States with the rotations we do and the number of examiners they have to see, we, we at least kept a lot of those complaints um, under control. Well, you know, they then, in what I read, it didn't say that this was an oral exam. And, it, and it, as a matter of fact, if it was an oral exam, you could basically allege that there is some issues about uh, prejudice. However, I think this is a written exam. And one of the things that they say is that nowhere in the application for the exam does it ask you your ethnicity. So it's like the, it's this kind of, um, uh, there's no, it's hard to say that this is a, a racially uh, charged exam, but they're doing it. And so it's kind of, and the, the final thing is, is that they say what I read is is that they need to import physicians uh, into Australia and New Zealand in large numbers because they don't have enough uh, on their own. They're not generating enough physicians, and so there's a lot of physicians coming from uh, other countries. Um, and they also said that many of these physicians have uh, English as a first language, so it's kind of interesting. We'll see how that's going to go. But now to the business at hand. All right, let's do it. Well, you know, I wanted to thank Mike Weinstock for uh, taking part in the last month's issue. I, I always like his cases. They, they go into detail that we, we, we don't have the detail on the cases that we, that we go over because of the source material just doesn't get into the specifics and nitty-gritty, which often doesn't allow us to really kind of tease out the real issues. So I want to thank Mike. And uh, the other thing is, is that we have been in contact with our good friend Amal Matu, who is who does actually he listens to this. He's one of the few people I know that listens to this. That's you, your mother, my mother, kind of thing. And, <laughs> yeah, and Amal. exactly. Right. Three. Uh, so, but in any case, Amal does uh, a lot of cardiology-related work, as you may intuit, and I think he's going to have a great deal to offer to us. No, I'm I'm anxious to hear that. Uh, I don't think anyone on this broadcast needs to be told about Amal Matu. He is one of the great teachers in emergency medicine, and it's a great honor to have him on. So, hey, listen, Rick, let's, let's do get it. started. You've got um, okay. I want to do the first paper. It's entitled. This is a, this is an interesting paper. 
It's entitled Early Death After Discharge from Emergency Departments, Analysis of National U.S. Insurance Claims Data. It was published in the BMJ. The BMJ is no longer the British Medical Journal. They've changed its name to the BMJ. Uh, it's like TRW. What the heck? You know, aren't they proud of their British heritage, you know? I, I have no idea why, but the point is the BMJ it publishes stuff from everywhere, Rick. It's like the New England Journal. Uh, it comes from around the world. It, it's one of the uh, journals which is really quite respected. Now, why the U.S. is publishing this stuff in the BMJ, I'm not sure. But go ahead. Give us, give us the lowdown. So this is a, a look at a 20% sample of fee-for-service Medicare patients over a five-year period. So we're talking about 10 million patient uh, patients uh, here that uh, came that generated this sample. And they looked at people who died within a week of the ER visit. Uh, and this came out to be only 12,375 patients out of this huge database. It was 12,000 people. But you must admit, if somebody's in the ER and they are sent home, and they die within a week. There's the, there's some issues with regarding the sniff test of something went wrong in the ER. Yeah, I'm going to start right now uh, trashing the paper, Rick, because we send people home we know are going to die. No, come on, come on, don't don't go there. The average age of the patients was 69, which is which is much less than you are there, Chief. <laughs> you know. This Rick, is not, these are not 80, 90-year-old people who are going. Some of them are because well, yes. the average age was 69. Now, Rick. Well, they're all Medicare I, patients, Greg, so you have to be 65 to, to get into the club. Pretty much. But uh, you notice that this is still 0.12% of people sent home. So you're talking one in a 1,000. Um and to say that we know exactly whether they should or should not have died, I think is the principal problem with this paper. Oh, of I, course they should not have died. They're 69 years old for crying out loud. You <laughs> Rick, know, it's, Rick, I don't want to have to teach you statistical analysis here, but there are plenty of people near uh, 75, 80 whose congestive heart failure or COPD, which are the two most common reasons to get admitted, are so bad that they are going to die. Well, uh, listen, listen, there is good stuff here, man. Don't, okay. don't trash this thing. Here you go. Hospitals, catch this, hospitals in the lowest fifth of inpatient admit rates had the highest rates of early death. Well, that seems to make sense. If you don't admit anybody, they're going to be more likely to die if you send them home. But the numbers were pretty uh, pretty striking. That lowers fifth, 3.4 times higher than hospitals in the top fifth of admissions. And catch this, small increases in admission rates were associated with large decreases in rates of one-week deaths. Higher volume EDs, had lower rates of one-week deaths, as did those with higher charges. Now, higher charges, you know, kind of makes my hackles, uh, whatever those hackles do, it, whatever, it does it to them. Yeah. But, but maybe this means as a surrogate for they had more stuff done um, uh, to them than uh, some other place. Yeah, Here's the most important point of this paper. All right. You ready? 
Ready? Yeah. All right. I, 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 I'm willing to listen to this before I just beat myself, my head against the wall. Go ahead. I'm going to give you the most important part of this paper. Certain discharge diagnoses were more often associated with one-week deaths. They generally are a statement, a restatement of the symptoms or physical findings. So that's not a diagnosis. Like, quote, altered mental status, dyspnea, malaise and fatigue. Those aren't diagnoses for crying out loud. These are a restatement of the symptoms. And we're going to have some other papers this month where the restatement of symptoms uh, reflect a problem in terms of understanding what's wrong with the patient. And from a diagnostic point of view, that's not a diagnosis, Greg. I, I understand that's not diagnosis, but you understand in emergency medicine, we frequently don't have the diagnosis, I, Rick. I, I agree. However, I think a lightning bolt should strike you when you're going to restate patient symptoms on the discharge uh, uh, because it maybe should you we should think twice about uh, can I try to pin a diagnosis on this to the extent I can? Because we're going to see some papers, Greg. This month, where this this restatement issue came up. I, I understand that that's a problem, but there's nobody listening to this broadcast. That's you and I included. I assume you're listening to what I'm saying here. What? what? Who, has, who so hasn't, what? hasn't put down a symptom on the diagnosis line on a series of patients. If we had to wait to have the final diagnosis on every patient in the emergency department, we'd have to keep them there till we autopsied them, Rick. No, and- I, I understand that. And, and emergency physicians are allowed, there's about 25, at least there were, there's about 25 symptoms which are recognized uh, with as ICD-9 diagnoses that yeah. uh, we're allowed to, to use, basically. Um, however, I think that if you <clears throat> can't drill down, as an example, there's a diagnosis called nonspecific abdominal pain. Correct. Um, I would prefer to put down something like non-surgical abdominal pain, something where we can feel comfortable that we're sending them home <laughs> without something that is going to come back and bite us. All right. So just to save us from uh, going af- after each other on this one, All right, say, let me just say, say there, you there say are probably. Do you give up? There, no, I don't give up yet. I mean, I mean, there's enough of the Jerry Hoffman in me that I'm going to come after you here, Rick. But the bottom line is, I think that if we can take anything home from this, that in our elderly patients, and you and I are now a part of that, um, sometimes. Uh, erring on the side of being a little cautious is not a bad thing. Uh, but I, I think the way this paper is done, if they say, who died in one week? What you don't see is a paper who said who was dead in two weeks. Uh, and maybe if we made that shift, these numbers would look different. And we don't know that. They would look worse, obviously, if you looked at uh, deaths in two weeks. And you would still say, Average 69 years old, did something go wrong in the emergency department? But but I, can, I understand that you just don't have any love for this paper. I got it. 
Yeah, yeah, okay. As long as you understand the the limitations of this paper, I think we're okay. But uh, we'll we'll move uh, we'll move on from there. Rick, what's this thing from Horty Springer? We had a well, you know, we had a comment. On that. They, they do this newsletter, and Mike Ritter uh, forwards to us things that relate to the emergency department, so we don't have to pay for it, kind of thing. Yeah, um, this is a quickie. Uh, an emergency physician orders an MRI on a child for symptoms that are not elaborated in, you know, what we got from them. The hospital policy gets, gets this is that the insurance companies must pre-approve the performance of an MRI. The child has a hematoma pressing on the spinal cord, but the diagnosis is delayed. Obviously there's a bad outcome or we wouldn't be talking about it. Yeah. This um, is just nuts, Rick. <laughs> this is where we've now decided that somebody sitting in an office, and I don't care whether that's the government, the insurance policy, people, whatever it is, they should have the final say over people who are there with the patient. Th this is infuriating. It's stupid. I certainly hope that this emergency doc had some way of going up the chain quickly and getting what they needed. Obviously they didn't because it's a lawsuit, but you know, if you have uh, reasonable training in emergency medicine and you believe that that expensive and somewhat complex study is needed in a limited number of cases emergently, you know what, if it, if it meets those criteria, you ought to be able to get the study. I don't understand this. I just don't. Well, this is, yes, this was uh, absurd that this was the policy. This was the way HMOs were like 10 years ago where you had to get pre-approval for all of this stuff. We basically right. got rid of all that. And here's the kind of a remnant of it hanging out. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that we've, we've gone through this over and over this machine is freaking sitting there. The only thing that it's really going to cost for this one study is the electricity and the tech time. And, and to basically assure that you're going to get your two $2,500 charge for this uh, 10 minute test is kind of like, uh, it, 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 it just doesn't ring true to a jury for client ally. What do you think they're going to, they're going to think with this uh, policy? But my point of view on this is a little different. I think, that the MRI should be viewed as a increasingly used uh, diagnostic modality in the emergency department. I believe that the MRI should be used in suspected uh, navicular fractures when the X-ray is negative and your and your snuff box is sore and you're suspecting this fracture. I think that it also can be used in pregnant women who have abdominal pain. It is certainly used in all of the cases where people have. Um, brain, uh, posterior fossa, spinal cord, neurologic kinds of things that are not going to show up or crying out loud on a CAT scan. That's uh, also used in, in, it can be used, and this is clearly, I think you're going to jump on this one, in, in acute knee injuries where there's a hemarthrosis. You know that if somebody comes in with a hemarthrosis, a big knee, after an acute injury, there is substantial internal derangement of that knee, and I can assure you that that person's going to get an MRI by the the doctor that you're referring them to. So you're going to put them on a knee immobilizer, send them to an orthopedist, and that guy's going to send them for a MRI. 
So yeah, I Rick, think that- I, I think you're absolutely right on all that. Our only problem is this. The way we've got our costs and charges screwed up. So you have to look at a country like uh, Britain, where they've they've done this, and you and I have done in the EMA database at least two papers from Britain that looked at using the MRI for the wrist. Now, the Brits don't do anything unless the overall picture is cheaper. They don't. But what they said was, you get the answer right away, and it's easier to send people back to work. Um, you know, I think we got to start viewing things in the longer perspective. So your tirade about the MRI is right. Our only problem is uh, it ought to cost a dollar and not $2,000. Well, we, doing this risk management thing, know that the MRI is a test where you're going to be, it's essential that you do it for certain neurological problems and spinal cord, but it's clear, clearly optional in something like an, a suspected navicular fracture. But I can tell you, Greg, I'm not interested in having my wrist immobilized in a thumb spike, a short arm cast for a week or two, and then have a re-X-ray. I'm not interested in that. I, I, I got better things to do with my life. So the fact of the matter is I want to know the, the diagnosis today. And also, how am I going to wipe my butt, you know, right. with my, my, come on. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, uh, Rick, nobody minutes. wants to know what better things you have to do with your time, so we'll move on from here. Hey, this uh, but, is a great, great case, Greg. This yeah, is it's a a, a kind of a case like Mike Weinstock would give us. It's It's uh, got the details that you want to see. Yeah, this is from the Texas Medical Liability Trust, and the presentation is this, a 45-year-old woman with lower extremity weakness called EMS to her home. Stop. I'm a neuro guy. Lower extremity weakness means there's got to be some level there in your body, and we've got to figure that out. The patient was transported to hospital ED with, and then quotes, new weakness and altered sensation to bilateral lower extremities. Uh, so we've got a motor compo- component and we have a sensory component. The patient had a history of insulin-dependent diabetes and chronic back pain. Oh, my God. The triage nurse noted the patient had bilateral leg weakness, ability to lift or bend her legs. The patient reported she had been recently seen at another hospital on two occasions for urinary tract infections and back pain. Now, some of this stuff sounds like background noise, but we're going to see when this case is over that what appears to be background noise with regards to her symptoms and, and like is not. No, I, I, the, <laughs> the one thing about most of these cases when we think it's background noise, history and physical will solve that problem for you. And uh, when your arms are good and your legs are bad, I don't know, I'd look for something in between. Phys- uh, physician actions, a uh, ED physician examined the patient and noted uh, the, the paresthesis, and uh, she had hyperglycemia, hypokalemia. Patient's metabolic values indicated a hemoglobin uh, A1C of 15.9. That's, that's big time. I, yeah, I, you're, yeah. Just for if you don't have a frame of reference, we're looking for uh, hemoglobin A1Cs around seven or eight. 
Yeah, well, that's on a good day for me. You understand that, but and a blood glucose of five ninety nine. Ah, that's impressive. Yeah, and a potassium of three three. Physician A attributed the leg weakness and paresthesia to the patient's hyperglycemia and low potassium. Now, <laughs> uh, why are the, why aren't her arms involved? Well, the, her legs are involved. Well, well, low potassium settles to the lower part of your body. Low, that's why I call it low potassium. It, yeah. it, it only affects the lower part. Okay. God help me. I hate to say <laughs> these words. No neurological exam was noted. Uh, you can't do that when they come in complaining of weakness in their lower extremities and, and dysesthesias in the lower extremities. You can't do that. That's, that's just not right. He prescribed uh, insulin, potassium, uh, ketorolac, uh, and, and a discharge. The patient told the nursing staff that she felt she could not be discharged and that she was unable to bear weight or walk. That's why, since there's no neuro exam, nobody watched her walk. You know, it's hard to send people home who can't walk. You you got to send them someplace or with someone. Uh, you you can't just send them home if they say they can't well, listen, walk. Listen, would you kind of agree that watching a person walk is like the ultimate neuro exam? Yes, I absolutely. It's I've the, said that for years. That is the exam. Three things you do, hear them talk, watch them walk, look at their eyes. And I can't tell you the number of people who'd rather check a box and get a study as opposed to just get them out of bed to see if they can actually get around. I know it's inconvenient. You have to bring somebody else into the room sometime, but this just isn't right. All right. ED physician B. Yeah, this is a, a second doctor now who's coming into the scene here. Second doctor on the shift, yeah. Uh, sees the patient in tears while she's exiting the hospital. B observed that the patient was uh, the patient was able to bear some weight and move her legs. He ordered an MRI of the patient's lumbar spine. The MRI was quote unquote negative, with the exception of bilateral hydronephrosis and urinary bladder distension. Physician B ordered a Foley catheter to relieve the patient's bladder distension, instructed the patient to follow up at a nearby clinic. Patient was instructed to see a urologist for removal of the Foley and management of her bladder dysfunction. Holy smokes. Now, this isn't going well. A few hours after the patient's discharge, the patient arrived at another hospital. And <laughs> you, it's always bad when a few hours later they go someplace else because the second hospital, or the, this is the third hospital now, is not going to be gentle or kind to you. <laughs> They're going to say to that family at some point, what did those fools do at that other place? She was admitted from the ED. The admitting doc consulted a neurologist to assume the patient had previously undergone a full MRI of her spine. Two days later, the patient showed signs of neurologic deficit in her legs and incontinence of the bladder and bowel. We're going back to the same thing we knew at the beginning with the history, Rick. It was then discovered that the previous MRI had only covered lumbar spine. An MRI of her entire spine was ordered. I'm sure what they mean is, you know, below T12. And it revealed a large spinal epidural abscess, T4 through 7. Oh, my God. 
And five days later, after the patient's uh, diagnosis, the treating physician initiated a transfer to another hospital with neurosurgical capabilities for urgent decompression. The surgery did not restore the neurologic function of the patient's legs. The patient is now permanently paraplegic, requiring at least eight hours a day of custodial care. Oh, God. What do you think, Rick? Well, we've covered spinal epidural abscesses ad nauseum. And this paper really uh, allows us to tease out some of the more uh, interesting aspects. Like, um, first of all, you cannot do a certain level looking for a spinal epidural abscesses. That is a fundamental mistake. If you think you're looking for a spinal epidural abscess, you have to uh, do an MRI of the entire spine. The thoracic, the, uh, the, the lumbar, you, it's, it's, a, it's a mistake to do exactly what they did and see if they could localize where the problem is. The literature will just not support it. Yeah. The other thing By the way, I, I think a proper neurological exam would have showed you where this level was on this patient, but that's Greg, that's the side. Well, uh, the the papers we have in the EMA database says you cannot predict where this um, lesion is with exactly. enough sensitivity to, to that just get the whole thing. The other thing is is that what is a what would a lady be doing with a full bladder that you would just empirically stick in a fricking Foley catheter and send her out? What are you thinking about? Women don't have distended bladders. Uh, they don't have any prostate that you screw up the, the release of their urine. And, and the picture also showed hydronephrosis. Her, she's got, this isn't spinal. Don't you get Greg with a, um, called Aquinas syndrome. You get, retention of urine and you may get overflow incontinence and you get dilation of your anal sphincter. This lady is manifesting the signs that are seen in a cord equinus syndrome. This, this is the compression of her, of her, of her nerves here. Yes. Yes. No, this, uh, this is a autonomic nervous system problem and she's got a big distended bladder and uh, I, I think we're going to get into this in the rest of this uh, session today, Rick. But what we have here is we have some diagnostic momentum going on that we've, we've made a diagnosis of the fact that she is uh, practically in uh, ketoacidosis. And we've decided that her problem is her diabetes. And we're not looking at at all the signs and symptoms presenting to us. That's the problem. I mean, I'm quite sure that this doctor has never in his entire practice or hers ever seen a person who had the, the symptoms that this person had and attributed them to a low potassium of 3.3 and a 600 blood sugar. Yeah, never. He. This is the first case he's ever seen of it. And he pulled this diagnosis out of his Yes, wherever. But the, the but the the bad thing about this case too is there are multiple mistakes along the way, including the fact that once admitted to this hospital, and once they did the correct study, it was five days later that they were referred to another hospital to have the decompressive surgery done. 
Um, this is after they've been seen by a neurologist, after they've been admitted to the hospital. You know, Rick, sometimes there's a reason why we bought malpractice insurance. And this is the kind of case where a whole lot of people are going to have to be contributing a whole lot of money. Well, you know, it's kind of unfortunate because uh, the emergency physicians had two chances to get this right. The first doctor blew it. And I'm always concerned about people who are who are wheeled out of the emergency department, you know, who should be able to walk out. Right. I can, we, I've said this before. It's fine if you want to do it as a convenience for the patient. It's fine if they have a sprained ankle and you want to wheel them out kind of thing. But if they can't walk out, uh, I get some real uh, real problems with, with that. So here's the first doctor blew it. And then on top of it, the second doctor blows it. It's like, yeah. you know... What's the chances of that happening? Well, I yeah. guess it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, you know, we, it, it happened in this case, and uh, that what went on. It's very interesting because Texas is a state that, for emergency physicians, has uh, the gross negligence standard with regard to uh, the care. Uh, obviously, in this case, uh, this was considered, or someone testified, that this constituted gross negligence. Okay, Rick, next case. This is a 20-year-old presents with fever, cough, and rash on his chest. The emergency physicians noted uh, pharyngeal erythema and made the presumptive diagnosis of scarlet fever. The patient was allergic to penicillin, but had a cephalosporin in the past. IV ceftriaxone was given, and the patient developed Stevens-Johnson syndrome with lots and lots of complications. The claim that giving IV reaction was negligent. Uh, who, who, now, what's the outcome of this case, Greg? What do you think the outcome is? You asked well, me Well, if it, if it was presented correctly to the jury, I think the doc should win this. And the reason is this whole deal of is there a 3 to 5% overlap between cephalosporins and penicillin uh, is real difficult to say because of the way people come in and, and what they claim. How many people in your career, Rick, claim to be allergic to penicillin? Well, a significant number, and we know that have actually tested the vast majority are not. And I think one of the things is that when you're a little baby and you get ampicillin for the ear infection that you really didn't have, right. you develop an ampicillin-related rash. They say, Mom, this Johnny's related, are allergic to penicillin and forget taking it ever again. So right. most of these, by far, are not legit. Well, the other thing is, uh, and ceftriaxone isn't the only antibiotic that could be used in this case, but it's certainly one of them. Um, you know, whether this patient actually had scarlet fever or not, we don't have any indications to whether there was titers taken or anything like that. Rick, isn't it true that scarlet fever is vanishingly rare? It's, it's like rheumatic fever in the United States. They are disappearing from the well, map. I don't know that, Greg, because, uh, this strep that causes it is not your normal strep. This is a special strep right. uh, that causes this. It's kind of like, it's not like a fluke uh, that uh, your garden variety strep causes it. So I'm not quite sure that that's the case. But the, the thing that strikes me is 
this is not a diagnosis that requires parental antibiotics. Um, now, cephalus born is a third generation, and the further uh, away you get from the first generation cephalus borns, the, the, the less likely. So I think that, you know, uh, this was still, in retrospect, a bad decision, first of all, because parental antibiotics are not needed for strep Scarlet is, fever, is, right. is highly sensitive to antibiotics. This is a dumb bug. It is not learned to mutate, to become resistant. So penicillin is still the drug of choice. But if you can't take it, you still have other things that you can give. You can give erythromycin, you can give the uh, azithromycin for this. There's no reason, and I think in emergency medicine, we generally choose to avoid using a cephalosporin when a patient says they're allergic to, because there is this small, unpredictable crossover, and when it happens, they're going to say, what the hell did you do that for? As it turns out, as you, as you predicted, the doctor won in this case, because um, they did a nice job of making the case that this was um, a highly unlikely outcome. My point of view is IV ceftriaxin was uh, using a bazooka to treat a no no big deal. <laughs> yeah, to kill a mouse, right, exactly. All right, case number three. An adult male heroin addict presents with three days of severe back pain, <laughs> oh, nausea, and oh, God, stop it, stop it, right? The patient has tachycardia and fever, elevated white blood count, and, and elevated glucose. Diagnosis, acute back pain with narcotic withdrawal, discharged within two hours of arrival. Now, is that, now hold on there. Is that a diagnosis, of which is a re restatement of the, of the symptoms? Yes, Rick. It's a restatement of the symptoms, uh, but it doesn't say that this is a Medicare patient. So uh, uh, your first article does not apply. Okay. I'm going to have to take that article away from you because you're going to use it too much. Now, here's what we don't have for this case. We don't know exactly what the physical examination of this patient showed. Blood culture returned, uh, returned two days later as positive. Call to the patients were unsuccessful, wrong number or transcribed wrong. Um, patient at least claims he did not get a call. Certified letter sent. Um, paralyzed two days later, of course. Hospital was found 64% at fault, $6.6 million. It was a confidential settlement with the EP. Should the Ben and, and now Let's get to some questions here. Um, having been a doc in a poor people's hospital, if we can't get a hold of them, would I have sent the police out? Um, the answer is absolutely. That's as good a function as the police have. The police are supposed to protect us. Sometimes it's from ourselves, Rick. And, and I don't think that it would have been unreasonable. I've certainly... Uh, sent police to people's houses. And um, if we can't get a hold of them, what are we supposed to do with a positive blood culture? After all, the only reason you drew a blood culture was to do something with it when the patient came back. Well, you and know, sometimes blood cultures are, are done unnecessarily and, and, and inappropriately. As an example, blood cultures in pyelonephritis are total waste of time. 
Right. So if I, you have a, py a pyelonephritis patient and you treat them in the ER and give them fluids and antibiotics and they're feeling better and you send them home and you order a blood culture and it's going to be positive, it is irrelevant. It is irrelevant. Now, this but is you different treated them. Yes. See, there's, there's no evidence in That's this true. case that this patient was treated. Yes, and, and this guy's coming in with severe, quote, severe back pain. And do you get nausea and vomiting with severe back pain and tachycardia and fever and elevated white count? What do you What do you want? A, 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 a and it's poster? a drug. And he's a he's a drug shooter, right? I understand. I understand. This is this is an obvious problem. And what you noticed is uh, the jury agreed. <laughs> they gave six points uh, six million dollars uh, against the hospital That's and. We don't know what the emergency physician paid out, but what I'd say is it, when, whenever you get something back and it looks bad, it looks like it could be a problem. You kind of have an obligation to get a hold of the patient and well, you, you know, need to do I think that, uh, this is an opportunity to, to, um, <clears throat> screw up because if you dial somebody's phone number and it turns out to be uh, doesn't work or it's the wrong number or something like that, we often assume that that person was trying to, especially in this case, or an IV drug user, that they're really trying to basically hide um, from you. They don't um, want to be um, followed up here. And so I think that uh, we assume that the person lied, but there's also the opportunity to transcribe the number that they gave you wrong. And you're calling a wrong number, not because they lied, but because you've made a mistake. Yep. And so I think that when you um, call somebody uh, and there's and there's this problem, there's a thing called not uh, calling the operator to see whether, in fact, this is a, a this person has a listed telephone number. Uh, that would be a normal response of a human being is to is to see if they're, they're they have a listed number. Yeah. And the and the idea of sending a registered letter. You know, this post office, man, it'll get there in a month. Yeah, they, it's not a month, but let's say it's a few days after they've become paralyzed. This is a time urgent problem. Right. So, so the, now I don't know that it is your, your options are very limited here. We might think, oh, geez, it's a big deal to ask the police to go. Well, they're in the donut shop anyway, for crying out loud. They got time to do this. Yeah, yeah, I th I think that uh, you know if we can get cats out of trees, uh, we can <laughs> notify people who have who have positive blood cultures. Uh, Rick, do the next uh, case. Twenty-six-year-old is involved in a bar fight on the Fourth of July. Uh, that that wouldn't happen, would it, Rick? On no, our national holiday, uh, people where, where in bars fighting. Yeah, he's taken to a local hospital by ambulance for a facial laceration. He waits an hour to be seen and wants to leave. I guess their door to doctor time is not so hot. Yeah. His brother was president and was going to take him to another facility. He, there, this is right from the transcript here. He requested an AMA form, which I intuit. This guy must fill out a lot of AMA forms. He must not <laughs> yes, have a exactly. Can I have the form, please? And the nurses refused to give him one. Wow. When the patient started to leave the ED, he was physically restrained by hospital security and, and sedated by the medical staff. On awakening, 
the patient was being sutured. He was discharged after 10 hours. The patient sued everybody. The hospital alleged that they couldn't let him go because of the, pa the patient having a head injury that required further evaluation, and it was not appropriate for the patient to leave. Um, now, there's lots of details that we would like here with regards to the person's capacity to make these judgments and how intoxicated they were and those kinds of things. But it doesn't sound right. If, if you're going to be, by the time 10 hours goes by, you're going to be very, very, very sober and very pissed off. Yes. Well, what it, what, what they needed to set up immediately was, uh, the five parts we've talked about, what's their condition, what's their capacity, work with the family member that's there. Uh, this is part of shared decision-making that you work with the family about, you know, where they're going to go, what could happen, all those sorts of things. Uh, the hospital said they couldn't let them go because of a head injury. Well, not every laceration to the face is a head injury. But I do agree that there are patients who do not have capacity to, to act in their own self-interest, and you do have to restrain them. That's not, that's not inappropriate. Once he wakes up, uh, you're going to have another problem, reevaluating his capacity and deciding whether he needs to be let go at that point in time. One of the ways to deal with this when people are, are kind of acting up a bit is to take their clothes away from them. Most people, even if they're uh, drunk, will not leave the department naked. Oh, but that that gown covers so much, Rick, that there's, uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that serves. You'll remember that a couple of years ago, we reviewed the Kowalski case. Oh yeah, York. sure. The Kowalski, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, remember the Kowalski and the, the pierogi, the pierogi thing, this, kibasa. This is the kibasa case, and uh, uh, you know he he basically the emergency docs who let him go at that time, the court said, yep, at that point in time he did have the capacity to leave, and when the patient has capacity, you're not supposed to hold them down. You're not supposed to restrain them. So if we take the, the uh, that was uh, Kowalski versus uh, St. Francis Hospital, went to the state, the New York um, uh, Superior Court. And uh, I think that it's always judgment, but reasonable documentation, how's the patient doing, is still what's going to save you in these cases. So tell me, Rick, what happened here? Well, this is kind of one of those false imprisonment cases that you took my rights away from me, all that. So it was a, it was a $10,000 case. I mean, nobody got harmed from a medical point of view here. What was harmed was the guy's pride. Yeah. Well, it's it, $10,000 means they just didn't want to deal with this anymore because trying a case would have cost the hospital uh, $80,000 yeah, or $90,000. Nobody would would take a case to the to the courts. I don't think uh, with this for a what was the harm? What's the damages here? None. Well, again, it, it it it's all in the eye of the beholder. All right, we got another one. 
um, we we got a lot of uh, we got a lot of bad actor cases uh, this month. An intoxicated patient presented with a lip laceration due to a domestic disagreement. Now it's not listed here who the disagreement was with. This patient was instructed to remove all of his clothes, put on a gown, and give the clothes to the security guard. The patient took off his clothes, but refused to give them to the security guard. An altercation breaks out, uh, ensues, and the security guard put the patient in a chokehold, lying face down uh, with people on top of him. He never regained consciousness. Rick, what are some of the errors here? Uh, you're not <laughs> secure. Security guards at most hospitals are incapable of 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 bringing anybody down. They're usually retired people who walk around like Tim Conway used to do, but nobody remembers. And uh, I remember this, Tim Conway with yes. that little shuffling walk kind of thing. They're not first. Yeah. They're, this is this is kind of an atypical situation. Uh, obviously, you know this is a grossly over uh, aggressive response to a a. It sounds like this could have been talked down here, kind of thing. Um, I, I think if you're uh, let me let me make three or four points. Number one, if you're going to uh, control someone physically, do it with shock and awe, overwhelming force. Because that way you don't have to put them into chokeholds and sit on top of their bodies. Number two, there ought to be a protocol in that hospital as to how you restrain patients and and how long you keep them down, these sorts of things. But holding the face down with people sitting on top of him is never a good idea not the way this thing ought to go. The degree to which the physician involves is involved in this case, we're not sure. Uh, we know, but we we know a bunch of things, but we don't know how much the physician was involved in the payment in this case. But it settled. It, it, the settlement was two point five million dollars. Um, I hope this was mostly on the hospital side and not the doc side. Because usually docs aren't in charge or are only a part of the restraint process and are usually not the principal restrainers in these cases. Yeah, that's true. And we just don't have enough information. $2.5 million is, is not very much, actually, I don't think. for uh, The last guy got $6.6 million. Just write down that chokeholds are probably not a good thing to use in the emergency department. Sounds like uh, this was a big freaking mistake here. Um yeah, and I think the other point we need to hit again is he did take his clothes off. He didn't want to give him security guard. Maybe you could add a little conversation like, okay, we'll set them here right here in a pile so you can still watch them. Oh, God. Do something. You, Come you up with something. This is, yeah, this is – now, I should tell you that um, – in some hospitals, the security guards are leg uh, very legitimately uh, serious people. Like at USC, these guys are real are cops. They got badges on. They're real cops. They're not <clears throat> the uh, rent a cop kind of thing. Uh, so, 
there there are variations on this. And you had mentioned it before about a case. I was going to note that at one of the county hospitals here, they did have a patient who left who uh, I'm not exactly quite sure whether, what the, what the issues were in terms of keeping them there, AMA, whether there was any restraints involved. But anyway, this person left and he got hit by a bus crossing the street outside of the hospital. Now, now you got to believe that there are some dollars changing hands in that case. Yep. Case number six, Gregory. <clears throat> this yes. is case month here. And, you know, we have a whole bunch of other stuff we want to cover. Do you think we should uh, do this le- case last? Well, this is the last case anyway. Right. Five-year-old presents with left shoulder deformity, limited range of motion, and extreme pain. There was also fever and tachycardia. It's called watch the vital signs for crying out loud. The emergency physician suspected a fracture, but x-rays were negative. He still suspected a fracture or sprain. The arm was immobilized, and the patient was discharged. Symptoms progressed, and she died of sepsis, and the diagnosis was not really stated here. Was it necrotizing fasciitis? Was it septic arthritis? It was... It's called fever, tachycardia. X-rays are negative. You know, there is this issue of, you know, maybe there was some infection that was causing this. Anyway, it's so easy for us to be Monday morning quarterbacks. There's no question. But, you know. Yeah, I I think that the uh, uh, bias here is very clear that when you have somebody, a kid with a painful arm, our usual assumption is it's traumatic uh, and it's it's going it's it's going to take some time, and that we're going to immobilize them. But when you actually have a kid who's tachycardic and is febrile and has no history of trauma, um, I think you got to have some alternative diagnoses here, Rick. And that th- this case isn't going to go well. I'm not sure how much got paid out on this, but uh, this was. This is not the kind of case you want to take in front of a jury. $750,000. Well, which is um, actually for your five-year-old is not a lot. No, it's not. Actually, you you just got a call we stopped for. I just got a text from my son who is uh, now leaving for Ibiza. He's in Europe for two weeks with his uh, lady friend and, uh, isn't Ibiza this place which is like a 24-hour party kind of thing? Yes, yes, exactly. Anyway, exactly. you know. Yep. All right. You, it's always good to get that kind of message from your kids, isn't it? Well, I've All been right. getting it. He landed in uh, London. He went to Copenhagen. He's now in, in Portugal going to, you know, holy smokes, you know. And you and I are going to lost wages next week. Yeah, you know? yes, exactly. For, uh, All to right. Do work. All right, next. A, a listener has an email. Uh, sent us an email that he's been listening to us for 10 years. He's now been named in a suit. Here's his question. Is review of a patient's chart a HIPAA violation? He says he didn't know if it was or it was not. The answer is this. If you have been sued, you and your attorney have a right to look at that chart. Do it through your attorney. Uh, and and sit and talk with your attorney. <clears throat> Any conversations will be covered. By the way, HIPAA does not stop you from looking at charts where you're involved. 
Uh, HIPAA is, is the arbitrary and capricious release of information. If you're looking at other people's charts that you're not involved in or have not been, not been brought up through a quality review system, that's not right. That's a HIPAA violation. But for you to go back and look at a chart with risk management or your attorney, absolutely not. That will be, that will be a part of the process. But do it through the process. <clears throat> don't just don't just wander down and pull the record. <clears throat> if you know there's a suit going on, do it the right way. Although Greg, I think that uh, I did take the liberty of calling uh, Bob Bitterman. Yeah. Our, our regional, local, national expert on this, who's in the middle of a bridge tournament, where he, if he wins this thing, his his team will be the national winners of 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 competition bridge. I mean, yes. Bob has been going up the ladder for years, and now he's in the big leagues, and he took the time from this <laughs> tournament to answer this question, and he. Uh, con- concurs with you, Gregory, although I don't honestly know if you have to go to the point where you can't look at the chart in medical records of a patient that you saw and who is now litigating you. It's like, I don't, I don't, I think you're pushing it a bit much, honestly. Well, the truth of the matter is now that everything is on computer, it probably doesn't make any difference. But in the old days, if you knew you'd been sued, uh, one of the reasons to protect yourself was to have it done with other people so that there was no question that you hadn't altered or tampered with a record. And so it is best for the protection of the physician that it be done through the hospital's uh, system. You know, Rick, I agree with you. It's maybe a little paranoid, uh, but the last thing you want is to say, have somebody ask, doctor, you pulled that record privately, didn't you? Did you alter that record in any way? It at least raises the, the specter of impropriety. I got you. Uh, what other questions did this person ask? Oh, how can I determine if my lawyer is capable and qualified? Uh, three or four ways. Number one, if you've got a major insurance company, they tend to retain lawyers who are pretty good at these things. Uh, if the lawyer is involved, is talking with you, is reviewing with you the kinds of experts he's looking for, uh, you're probably, you've probably got somebody who knows their business. Understand the lawyer's job is protecting you, not the insurance company. If your lawyer is is uh, not spending the time, not asking the right questions, and not getting the right literature and that sort of thing, that would be a sign that you're not dealing with somebody who's qualified. You know, I take it the point of view is that the insurance companies are the ones that these people are working for, and that they are they they are working for the insurance companies to protect that insurance company's monies. You're you're a secondary element in this business transaction. That's harsh, Rick. That's very harsh. And <laughs> most most of the attorneys I've met with actually do have the interest of the physician involved and no, I, and I think that the ins- the insurance companies really want an involved physician cuz they're they're going to provide better defense that way. 
Um, we don't want anything hidden. We don't want anything uh, uh, found out at the time of trial. So uh, a lot of these people do a pretty good job. Uh, the attorney is, uh, has said she has worked with she had worked with me in the past. Well, that, <laughs> that, that 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 makes the attorney very suspect in the first place. Yeah, automatically. Yes. Um, uh, we asked whether a motion for for a summary judgment was an option. Um, he asked this. And uh, I think the attorney gave him the right information. That is, summary judgment uh, is not given very often. The unless they violated, you know, the date of filing and these sorts of things. That's on a technical basis. But judges are loath to take decisions out of the hands of the process, out of the jury. They want the thing to be worked through because judges don't want to be accused of cutting off people's rights and access to the legal system. They don't want that. So if they have a certified expert who's going to testify or has provided an affidavit uh, of merit for the case, I think it's very unusual that a judge would, would deal with this uh, with a summary uh, disposition. Yeah, I guess with uh, I, I guess because he's been listening for uh, eight or so years that um, this phrase of summary judgment has come up over and over again. However, in this case, there was an expert who testified to the fact that this person was harmed, and so soon as that happens, you know you have to have it would it would be virtually impossible to get a judge to say. No, no, we're, we're going to throw this out. Now, in all truth, what some judges will say is we're going to go through discovery. We're going to actually hear that those experts uh, interviewed by your, deposed by your counsel. And if under uh, the uh, pressure of deposition, they say, nah, he didn't really violate the standard of care, they might take an action at that time. But saving that, uh, most, uh, most judges want this to be resolved with the system and not by their edict. Hey, Greg, uh, you know, back in March, we uh, did, reviewed an article where they talked about the various forms of bias that comes up in our ability to uh, clearly look at patients in front of us and, and get to the right answer. And yes. They had a list a, a, a mile long of all the biases, and I think that some of them were really kind of interesting. We were not we're not going to go over all of them. We did six back then, and we have a few minutes left. Um, let's do let's do the let's do the one called diagnose diagnostic momentum, Greg. That's the second one down here on our notes. Yes, uh, this stuff is all the work of uh, Pat Cross Carey. And these people who have been teaching us and telling us that it's not our innate intelligence and our huge knowledge bases, but we're like all other humans. If you show us something that starts to look like a duck, the more we look at it, the more we've decided it's a duck. And diagnostic momentum is, I like to summarize it with a train kept a rolling. And once you get into the process once you've gone off shift and told your friend that it's an appendix, all intelligent thought stops. 
because we have a diagnostic momentum. We want to move toward an answer, particularly one that there's a, that there's a, a, a definitive treatment for. Uh, so I think that uh, one diagnostic label um, doesn't mean that that's actually what the patient has. And through various intermediaries, patients, paramedics, nurses, physicians, we, we tend to get on these tracks and it's hard to get off the track. Sometimes you do need a, patient, a, a physician who comes in and starts from the beginning and asks another set of questions without all of this momentum bias going on. Ask yourself this, if you came in for the first time with this patient, what do you want? What do you think? Where's it going? Uh, without the input of everybody else. And this is absolutely the most seen in psych patients. I can't tell you the number of times somebody said, well, he's schizophrenic. No, he wasn't schizophrenic. Well, he has schizophrenia, but schizophrenia rarely kills you. They were encephalopathic. They were confusional. They had an organic disease process. I think momentum bias, particularly in psych patients, is the worst. Well, you know, I like the, the way they explained it in this first sentence here. Um, once diagnostic labels are attached to patients, they tend to become stickier and stickier. Okay, Rick. So we, uh, we need to finish up on all of these various biases on one of the, uh, one of the subsequent uh, programs. But I think that all of that stuff is absolutely true. We all bias ourselves when we're seeing patients. Um, it's now time for uh, Wine of the Month. Uh, I have to give an apology. Uh, one of our longtime listeners wrote in, and he mentions, on the February 2017 Wine of the Month, he said none of them were readily available to him. What he said was uh, the Louis Martini uh, Petite Syrah, which he, he concurs is a fantastic grape and very nice. He says is, is such a niche product, it has to be ordered through the winery and only if they've got it. Sorry, Mia Copa, Mia Maxima Copa. And then he says the Jack's Masterpiece uh, is so limited that he'd have to go through a wine auction spending 200 bucks plus, plus the shipping. All right, I'm sorry, I'm bad. The problem is this. Sometimes I'm being given wine at people's houses who are a member of various wine clubs. They get them in different ways. So I promise you today, we're going to go back to some gut-level wines that you can get uh, you can get without any problem. The first one is um, uh, Sebastiani, which has been in California for 100 years. They're 2014 Cabernet Sauvignon, Sonoma County. They've got one, you know, their lowest level, 19 bucks a bottle. Rick, can we handle 19 bucks a bottle? Is that okay? Well, I know you can. Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, I can only handle 19 bucks a bottle if uh, my kids let me, you know, otherwise, other times it's uh, jug wines and screw tops. The other one is uh, Rodney Strong Vineyards, 2016. The Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Sauvignon Blanc 
uh, is just terrific. Uh, and it's at 17 bucks a bottle. Now that brings you down somewhere near La Crema, which, -hmm. you know, is one of the, that's your wife's favorite wine. Well, actually she's got a new one now, which is, um, uh, getting up there, uh, she, she was turned on to it by Diane Birnbaumer, which was a big freaking mistake. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a problem, yeah. But but she is cautious with it. It's only like a special occasions, like every night, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> like Wilbur, Wilbur Wright's birthday and <laughs> yeah, things like that. Exactly, all exactly, the, exactly. All the big holidays. Exactly. Yeah, it's okay, that's good. For, so, again, my apologies about the difficulty of getting some of the wines, but there's a couple to try which uh, for the for the money are uh, it's pretty hard to go wrong with. Well, those. you know, I find it remarkable that somebody actually listens to your uh, listens to your recommendations and no less responds. Yeah, uh, Rick, I get more comments when I'm out on the trail uh, of the wine of the month than I do anything we've said uh, specifically about the cases. Uh, do we have any time left, Rick? Uh, we probably have a, a, a minute or two. All right. I'd, I'd like to say hi to all the residents back at, because uh, la- I've been doing some residency visits in the last uh, week. I was I was at uh, Metropolitan Hospital in New York, had a great time there. They brought in a plaintiff's attorney. In fact, he's the plaintiff's attorney who handled Joan Rivers' case, some defense attorneys, and all of us got to go at each other. It was a free for all. We had a great time, uh, and it uh, it was a good time was had by all. And I went to Geisinger in Danville, Pennsylvania, and which has now become a big time deal. They've got a residency there, and we spent a fair amount of time doing medical legal stuff. If I had to pass on a word uh, to residency directors who are listening. Make risk management a part of every case you present at Grand Rounds. It, it's not a tack-on. It's not an add-on that's a little lecture here and a little lecture there. It ought to be a part of every presentation. And uh, when you do that, then you sort of naturally inculcate the residents with the right way to think about things. So there you go. Okay, my friend, I look forward to seeing you in a couple of days in uh, Las Vegas. And um, we're going to have Amal Matu next month, and I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be fun. We've never had him on, but I I know he's a listener and a very engaging fellow. Gregory, thanks for for being with us. Thanks for your your words of wisdom, and uh, even though occasionally you screw up. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Adios. (laughs) 